1: I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zorniel. Carol serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, where she got her master's in gerontology, of all things.
2: Of all things.
1: That's a few years ago. How did you pick gerontology?
2: Well, you know, um, I was hanging out with older persons um, at the time, kind of for fun, and I thought, wow, this is more fun than working in a corporation, which I was doing at the time. So I switched careers. It's interesting. Yeah, but it's it's it'll be 30 years this year that I graduated.
1: Wow. Because so. you joke about at a cocktail party when people say, what do you do when you mention gerontology, their eyes glaze over.
2: That's right. And um, I have watched, uh, I was at an aging conference recently, and we went out and somebody else said, we're at an aging conference. We're in New Orleans, right? And right. Right. People right. want to have fun. It's like going to Vegas and their eyes glazed over and they were just like, oh, please get out of the car. I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs>
1: That's funny. <laughs> so from that experience, though, you've spent a lot of years from working with ACOG, Area Agency on Aging and on Government and other, all focused on issues involving seniors.
2: Right. And what I have learned over the years is ageism is still as rampant today um, as it was 30 years ago. We've really made so little progress. I can't uh, tell you
1: how many times I say to my wife, you know, that's ageism.
2: Right, and, and how many times my son, because I've been beating him up his whole life, will say, that's ageist, isn't it, Mom? Is this ageist, Mom? And I'll well, say, yeah, so he recognizes it. Or he'll say, now this is a little ageist, but... <laughs> well, that's how they
1: slip it in.
2: Yeah, slip it in. I'm like, no, you can't talk, you can't. It's not funny. I go tell him, go. It's not funny. It's not, it's a little, it's a little ageist. Well, you've it's got some funny. good
1: news, because we talk a lot about... Diet and exercise on on this program, on Caregiver SOS on air. And by the way, before we go on, I want to remind folks who are listening, we're going to be talking in just a couple of moments with a broadcaster and writer Richard Harris, who wrote a really powerful story about the Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and caregiving, and now her battle with Alzheimer's. And that will be coming up.
2: Well, and Richard Harris has such a distinguished career in journalism. He has done I'm it all. sorry that we don't have at least three days to ask him about all of his fascinating Stories. I mean, he was telling us before the air, uh, we you know today that he had you know celebrated Passover the day that um, Hong Kong was handed over to China. Wow! Not all of us were there that day.
1: he used to work and still works with Ted Koppel, former ABC broadcaster. That's right. So they were hanging out in hanging uh, out in in
2: Hong Kong for the big exchange, and that just happened to be a high holiday.
1: Now, exercise, which is recommended by every. PCP in the world. That's right. It
2: is the magic bullet. If you want to know, it is exercise. And
1: it turns out studies
2: show it has lasting effect. Well, thank you, Gretchen Re- Reynolds from the New York Times. Um, I thought this was really good news because we talk about exercise and then, you know, you exercise and then you stop. And you think, ugh, you know, people that – I used to exercise when I was young, people will say. Well, there's a new uh, study that shows that the benefits of exercise last longer than we might expect. So they went back 10 years later hmm. to people who were in an exercise study. Some of them did no exercise. Some did moderate and some did vigorous. That, that sounds pretty normal. And they went back and they looked at their um, – you know how uh, aerobically inclined they were, and uh, their various vitals they're at, at, at their vitals and their fitness. And of course, the people who didn't exercise in, at the time are not in good shape now. They're certainly not in better shape. Uh, the people that had moderate exercise actually still their blood work still showed um, signs of having exercised moderately. Wow. You know, at, but the people who exercised vigorously. You know, had um, their aerobic capacity had fallen the least, only about 5%. um, And some of them, you know, were still exercising four times a week. And some of them were more fit now than they were a decade ago.
1: That's pretty cool.
2: So they were, you know, inspired. I just, I thought it was great that, you know, obviously it's going to take sweat and effort uh, to maintain high endurance and to get the the most benefit out of the exercise that 's all the time, but um, you know a walk uh, if you want to improve your your blood control, your diabetes, all of that uh, your metabolic health, um, then a walk will do, and it still will do
1: and we keep seeing more and more studies that it could be a 20-second walk. Well, I'm just, just kidding a- about that. But didn't it be long?
2: Well, you know, a little bit of exercise every day. So there is something to that parking farther away, taking the stairs instead right. of the elevator, those little cheats uh, that we've heard about for years. There's truth in there somewhere.
1: I ran into someone actually in the building where we record this show at 930 a.m. The Answer. This is on the 12th floor. And there's this fellow who works here who was telling me he now climbs the stairs Every day when he comes to work, up 10 flights.
2: Right, which is great.
1: And it apparently is making
2: a difference. It does make a difference. I now keep a pair of weights under my desk. Um, And this is a true story. My father, who is 88... Um, recently got some light weights. And so during the commercials, he watches TV, and he knows he watches probably more than is good. And so now he's lifting weights at home. And I thought, well, I can do that. So I keep—I bought some weights. I keep them under my desk. When I feel my energy sagging, I lift a few weights. That is do so a few cool. reps in the office. I told him we're workout buddies. I like that. So. Well, you
1: could do it with a FaceTime. You could hook him up.
2: That's right. Yeah, he can show me. And, right. Yeah, and he's walking. So he started walking recently, and I was home over the holidays and noticed that his gait has um, sped up. He's walking a little faster than he used to, a little easier, not huffing and puffing. So, you know, this is somebody who just started walking again, and he's 88. So if he can do it, we can all do it.
1: Well, every provider will say to you, the patient who says, oh, I, I can't do it, I maybe can go only 20 steps. We'll start with 20 steps.
2: Right. So if the person you're caring for, you know, doesn't want to be in a nursing home and you don't want to put them in a nursing home, then you all need to exercise together.
1: Get out and do it.
2: Get out and do it.
1: She's Carol Zernell, I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The answer. And you've got oh, this is a good one. Sleep. How much sleep? People, people can't do see. You need. He went, One no, day we're going to have
2: the Facebook radio. Right. We'll you know. do Facebook live. We'll do Facebook live, and you'll yeah. be able to see me holding this up this cool. article in front of Ron's yeah. face.
1: Wake up, folks! Sleep.
2: That's right. Wake up! And, and this was dispelling the myths about sleep. And there's something in here that you believe, you and I believe, um, and we didn't know it was a myth. Right. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things like, okay, we've all heard this one way before Donald Trump was president. People used to say Donald Trump and Martha Stewart. How times (laughs) that's back when both were very popular. Um, Only sleep four hours a night. They don't need more than four hours sleep. Uh, that's so wrong. We're supposed to get between 7 and 10 hours of sleep a night. Um, it, it really is problematic to your health and your functioning if you're getting less than that. No, it's not okay to get 5 hours of sleep a night. Interesting. You're not going to live as long. Um, it's healthy to be able to fall asleep anytime, anywhere.
1: Now, I believed that. See? Now, you believe I, that. I believe I that. thought
2: so, too. It, it's just the opposite. That means you're exhausted. <laughs> That's what that means. If you just sit down and fall asleep, you're exhausted. You're not getting enough sleep. That's not exactly normal.
1: So I used to brag about it because having worked in political campaigns, you really do learn to sleep when you can. Right. Because you're exhausted. Right, but
2: you're never getting into that deep sleep that you need to recuperate. So another one, your brain and your body can adapt to less sleep. You know, I'm going to train myself to get six hours sleep a night. Well, apparently that's not true either. For the same thing we just talked about, you're not getting that deep sleep. Um, and and for those of you who um, turn off the, the hit the snooze button and sleep a little bit longer, that sleep is doing you no good. So now, according to this, you know you've you hit the snooze button. You do fall back to sleep for a few minutes, but now you're in the middle of a sleep cycle. So when you finally do wake up and the alarm goes off again you're in the middle of a sleep cycle and you're going to be groggier and it's going to be harder for you to wake up than if you had just gotten up when the alarm went off
1: I need to send this segment to my wife
2: exactly yeah. so snoring doesn't is uh, while it's annoying is harmless during sleep That's not true. That's like sleep apnea. It's waking you up. It's waking everyone up.
1: Exactly.
2: And um, it's exhausting to you and the people around you. So, um, you know, you need to address sleep apnea. Okay, here's the one that I might have believed. Drinking alcohol before bed helps you fall asleep. Yes, it does. So that part's true. The part that's bad is that it keeps you from going into deep sleep. You don't go into the... Uh, REM, REM sleep, the REM sleep, and you're, gonna, you're going to hear all the noises around you and you're going to wake up exhausted. So
1: don't have that nightcap.
2: Right. But my favorite one, this one really was my favorite, you can't sleep, just stay in bed with your eyes closed and just keep trying. You're getting rest while you're laying there. I have said this to my son. <laughs> you're getting rest while your right. eyes are closed. Right. And This is <laughs> no. No, you've got to, you have to admit, you know, you're not falling asleep. So, it would be better if you can't fall asleep to get up and do some mindless, boring activity like folding the socks in really low light, you know, maybe getting crumbs off the counter, something, um, and then trying again later. You need to adjust something in your room and you need to like start over again. So, it's better to just get up than it so, is just lay there and clench your eyes and keep thinking, I'm going to sleep.
1: We have all said that to our kids. I know right
2: yeah we've also I thought but I think I really believed it so that poor was kinda, Ben I know poor Ben um, watching TV is the same as the blue light on your phone uh, so, which is bad which is bad so don't do that and remembering your dreams is a sign of a good sleep so yes I remember my dreams all the time they're saying you really shouldn't be remembering your oh. your dreams it means that you've either you know disrupted woke up in the middle of them um, but regular, normal, mundane dreams—you shouldn't remember. Really. So I don't know. There's multiple times you dream at night, and maybe you and I are just remembering the last one. Ah. That must
1: be it. Well, some people keep a pad of paper by the bed and write them down.
2: <laughs> well, I've told this story before. I had a friend who was having these very vivid dreams, and he was really disturbing. And they're like, "You need to, you need to." So he put a tape recorder, you know, beside the bed. And he would wake up, and he would tell himself what he was dreaming, so he could track, you know, these dreams. <laughs> and what he heard when he played the tape recorder was, he couldn't make out a single word That's he funny. said. <laughs> he kept drawing it never got any better. Never was able. He thought <laughs> and he, he was speaking. He was thinking, "Yeah, he's really concentrating. He's talking to the tape recorder wow. when he first wakes up." Did no good.
1: That's incredible. Now Richard Harris, speaking of interesting people, is going to be with us in just a couple of moments. He has an incredible career and still working hard, award-winning television, radio, print, digital, and film journalist. And Carol and I independently read an article he wrote in Next Avenue in uh, March of this year, talking about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor caregiving for her husband who had Alzheimer's and now 88 years old and battling Alzheimer's. He's next right here on Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zernial, on 930 AM The Answer. Ever wonder what you can learn from listening to Well Med Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host Cora Jukes is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
2: You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure. But we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can
1: catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. Well, in the small world category, Carol Zernial and I independently read the same article in Next Avenue, a wonderful piece written by Richard Harris about the challenges that former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor faced caring for many years for her husband with Alzheimer's, and then she herself diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and we both independently said to our producer, Hester, you need to get Richard Harris on the air. Well, guess what? She did it, and he is with us Richard Harris joins us on our Caregiver SOS on our hotline, a long and distinguished career. We don't want this to sound like an obit, but do you think of all the stuff that you have done, Richard? It's quite a bit in broadcasting, and we're delighted you're with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. When you wrote about uh, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, you had interviewed uh, uh, her son, and, and you talked to Evan Thomas, who published recently a book about her. Uh, how did you get into the story about uh, the struggles she faced caring first for her husband and then for herself.
3: Can I take a moment of uh, a personal... Uh, uh, I, w- I just want to start with uh, that this really was an accidental story. It was completely unplanned. And I wanted to tell you about another accidental story, and I will quickly get sure. back to Sandra Day O'Connor. But I think it will help Tell the listener how some of the stories in journalism come about. This was um, back in 1995. I'm, I'm originally from the Boston area, though I've lived in Washington for more than 40 years. I'm a faithful reader of the Boston Globe, so when I was thumbing through the Globe one morning in the spring of '95 at the offices of Nightline, where I worked for 19 years, I came across this headline that stopped me cold. A professor's final course, his own death. It was the story of this Brandeis University sociology professor named Maury Schwartz, who was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease, who had wanted his last course to be how to die. He said, embrace it. Don't run from it. That's really the shorthand. He had a living funeral, so that all of his friends could say nice things about him, and he would hear it. See, not long before that, Ted Koppel had given me a ride home from work one night, and somehow we got on the topic of death. Ted grew up in England. He moved to the States really as a teenager. And he noticed that the English were much more open on the topic of death than Americans were. So Ted read the story of maury schwartz in the globe that i showed him and he asked me to get maury on the phone see if he would do an interview well he did and who happened to be channel surfing that night and saw his old professor on nightline but mitch album the sports reporter
1: who wrote who, the incredible and, book
3: it, it really was a, a strange set of uh of moments and then um so he of course called Maury the next day and would go to visit him every Tuesday for the next six months until he died. And just before Maury died, Mitch would tell him that a publisher, after many, many rejections, a publisher had finally bought a book that he had written simply to help Maury pay for his medical expenses. Well the name of that book of course was Tuesdays with Maury right. and it became the biggest selling memoir in the history of publishing until I suppose you know the Michelle Obama recent book uh so <laughs> nearly a quarter of a century later The play Tuesdays with Maury is still being staged all over the world. So this is where I come back to the accidental story of Sandra Day O'Connor and her family history with Alzheimer's. So this began for me this past winter. I was in the garage navigating the chaos that's our garage, and I stumbled on a box that I hadn't seen for a while, probably years. And it was brimming with some of the artifacts of my 40 odd years as a Washington journalist. Right on the top of the box, staring back at me, was the cover of the Alzheimer's Study Group report. This was not one of those blue-ribbon panels, you know, that Washington is famous for, the ones that they write the report that few people read, and then it gathers dust around the Capitol. This report really had special meaning, both professionally and personally to me. And I quickly did a Google search, and I discovered back in, I think this was December, discovered that in a few months' time, it would be exactly 10 years since the Alzheimer's Study Group report would be issued. And it would be a good time to take stock of how far we've come in the battle against Alzheimer's, because we had this war on cancer. But many in the Alzheimer's community would say we haven't amassed a similar arsenal against Alzheimer's. So the Alzheimer's study group was actually a congressionally selected group of non-scientists. They purposely picked non-scientists to come up with really an agenda uh, for what America should do about Alzheimer's. So the co-chairs were former Nebraska Senator Bob Kerry, former Speaker Newt Gingrich, former Surgeon General David Satcher was on it. So they wrote this strategic plan. And I had watched my dad develop Alzheimer's, really at my age, uh, currently in, in his 60s after his mother, my grandmother, had died from Alzheimer's. And, and you can understand that my sister and I were more than a little interested in the topic and efforts to find a treatment or a cure. So when I was director of afternoon programming at NPR in charge of all the afternoon shows uh, such as All Things Considered and Talk of the Nation, I heard that members of the Alzheimer's study group would be issuing their final report and testified before Congress. So I contacted a friend at the Alzheimer's Association, and he arranged for three members of the Alzheimer's study group, Neat Rich, David Satcher, and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, to appear on my NPR program for an hour and take calls around the nation. So what was chilling for me over the past few months when I looked back at the transcript of that show was Sandra Day O'Connor saying, on the air that you know 5 million Americans had the disease back in 2009 and it would grow by 50% over the next 20 years if sufficient money wasn't invested in research now little did anyone know that just 5 years later she would be diagnosed with dementia they they said dementia probably alzheimers because you never know whether it's actually alzheimers until after autopsy
1: all right, now, Richard, hold that me. thought. You, you know Go how ahead. this works, so people who just joined us want to know who they're listening to. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Richard Harris, and our co-host Carol Zerniel is here. Richard is talking about, uh, as a result of some work he'd done uh, on the Alzheimer's report, uh, how he hooked up and wrote a piece about Sandra Day O'Connor not only caring for her husband for many years with Alzheimer's, but then struggling with the disease herself.
3: Absolutely and you know what what I didn't realize was the extent I knew about her husband having alzheimer's and uh but I, what I didn't know going into this uh uh story was that she had actually lost her mother and her aunt to Alzheimer's um, before she lost her her uh her husband and of course um she had been diagnosed uh with probably uh four years ago now um so she left uh the as a matter of fact she left the Supreme Court to take care of John, uh, who had Alzheimer's uh and, and his situation was really deteriorating. So they put him in this Alzheimer's facility just months after she retired and she would later tell you know, Evan Thomas, uh, who was writing the book that came out this month about her, and it was probably the biggest mistake, the dumbest thing she ever did, uh, because she thought she was sort of paying him back. He was in a prestigious law firm in Phoenix when she was uh, confirmed to be on the Supreme Court. So he left Phoenix for her, and she felt it was only right at the time of his need, with Alzheimer's to return the favor so she left the court she was only 75 which is young by Supreme Court standards uh right. John Paul Stevens I think was 90 when he uh when he retired um and and so last October uh which was, as I said was about four years after she was diagnosed she issued an open letter and announced to the world that she had been diagnosed with dementia and she was no longer able to participate in uh,
1: public life. Now, one of the things you write about in your Next Avenue piece, which is so incredibly powerful, uh, she would go to visit him. Ultimately, she had to put him into a memory unit, uh, and he struck up a relationship with a woman there, and she'd go into the home, and there he was sitting holding hands with another woman.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it. According to Jade, it was not an easy That's thing. That's Jay, first, her son. But then I think she got some peace from it because she realized that, as frustrating and as difficult as it is for a patient to experience Alzheimer's, if there is something in his life that he can experience that gives him comfort or pleasure or whatever you want to call it, that's a good thing. And I think that she derived, ultimately, some comfort from the fact that he had somebody at the the facility.
2: Well, now, you mentioned in that opening um, that she felt like it was a mistake that she had placed him in the memory cabinet. No, that she'd left the Supreme Court. Oh, that she'd left the Supreme Court. Court. So why did she feel like that was such a mistake?
3: Yeah, there were really two tipping points for her. One was when she could no longer stay on the court, and the other one was when she had to decide that she could no longer care for him and had to put him in a facility. And, you know, my my mom went through the same thing with my dad. And what people who have never been through this don't realize, and it's one of the the things I give a lot of credit to uh, Jay O'Connor, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor's youngest son, who talked with me, that he opened up the family's you know, kind of privacy to the world in order to tell the story and perhaps help other people. And it's um, you know what I what I remember from my my uh, my dad is that he he was six foot tall and and you can become very aggressive uh, because you're very frustrated as an Alzheimer's patient. And she was barely five foot tall, so I think she had to hire um, one or two men to really be with him. And then and then uh, I think she realized it was just too much, and he, too, had to be put into an Alzheimer's um,
1: uh, All right, Richard Harris. We're going to come right back to you. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial, talking with Richard Harris, uh, a distinguished career in broadcasting and in journalism as well, and talking about Sandra Day O'Connor, both a caregiver and someone struggling, as uh, uh, he noted, with Alzheimer's herself. <music> fascinating conversation with journalist and broadcaster Richard Harris about Sandra Day O'Connor and her family talking about uh, uh, her struggle both as a caregiver and as someone struggling with Alzheimer's. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zerniel and Richard Harris is on our caregiver SOS on air hotline.
2: Well um, Richard you were you were talking before the break about how Sandra Day O'Connor would walk in to see her husband and he was holding hands with somebody else and that she was able to make peace with that. And I was reminded by um, a neurologist that we work with, uh, neuropsychologist, excuse me, that talks about, you know, how how difficult it is to have Alzheimer's and how isolating and lonely it feels. And he said, you know, if you uh, watch people with Alzheimer's, it's not unusual to see them reach out for some sort of human contact in whatever facility. You know, in this case, it, you know, it was her husband picking up with another, another woman to hold hands. But a lot of times you'll see women holding hands or men holding hands uh, because just that, that comfort that they need and they don't always get uh, in a facility or can't feel it.
3: Yeah. It's, uh, you know, again, unless you walked in the shoes and you've seen the dynamics that go on inside a family, this is why, um, uh, there's such a big push to, um, fund Alzheimer's research because, um, it really is, I think, at this point, the only major disease for which there is no treatment and no cure. Right. And, you know, one of the big problems was early on. Very and strangely, four hundred forty-eight million dollars sounds like a lot of money, but not when you're talking about compared to the money that would be. Allocated for cancer research, so that 448 million dollars from 10 years ago is now 2.3 billion dollars given to research. But it's a very long pipeline from the time the money is allocated until the research is um, uh, underway and. Ironically uh, and sadly, while I was writing this story, that same week they had a major setback and clinical trials were stopped on a very promising drug uh, that was that you know it was part of this theory that Alzheimer's is caused by a buildup of uh, beta amyloid protein in the brain, but uh, apparently given the uh, clinical trials being stopped um there's now question whether that theory is is accurate so it's it's um uh it is a very difficult um, long road and um uh, i just hope you know not just because i'm a family member and my, my dad had it my grandmother had it but for everybody who is looking for um a way to uh end this scourge, uh, you're hoping that there's some breakthrough so
2: Well, and I think that what the story that you wrote and what just Sandra Day O'Connor telling the world that she had Alzheimer's is giving voice to those who live with the disease. And that's something that has definitely changed in the last five years where we are finally Hearing from people who have Alzheimer's, um, and that could be the you know one of the the best uh, pushes we get towards funding more research.
3: Well, it's funny that you mention that because I talked for another related article uh, that I did about the uh, the efforts to find a cure. I talked with Senator Susan Collins, who is. I think the head of the alzheimer's task force force on capitol Hill and um she also is somebody who is is very um discouraged has been over the years that um there's been a uh, uh, a lack of um, of of funding and she has been really pushing hard and and i think successfully to to try to um Uh, you know, get sufficient funding, but but she she and I both said the same thing at the same time, which is when we were growing up People didn't say the word cancer, they said the C word, and it was like that until very recently for Alzheimer's. Somehow there was shame associated with having Alzheimer's, which of course couldn't be further from the truth. Nobody nobody causes their own Alzheimer's. It is part of a genetic process that uh, either you're lucky or you're not lucky, but uh, uh, it is... Um, Uh, it is finally coming out of the shadows, and I think maybe that will help uh, the community uh, uh, rally around and and, and put more money toward
1: it. Talk to us a little bit about the person that you grew to know in in Senator Day O'Connor. You write a really powerful uh, scene bringing her husband to work at the Supreme Court. He'd sit on a couch in her office, and even if he wandered, it was okay because there were guards there.
3: Yeah, when you think about you know uh, everybody in their own way has a work-life balance. Some people, when they have somebody in their family with Alzheimer's, can't even don't do not even have the time or the means to be able to continue working and and have to do this full time. And and you folks know better than I do about. The importance of respite care and and not having the caregiver then becoming ill themselves, and I think that um, what would happen with O'Connor is he, her husband John would go to daycare, and then for the hours that. He was not in daycare. He couldn't really be alone. And rather than have somebody at the house with him, she took him up to the uh, uh, to her chambers. She did her work, and he was on the sofa. And you know, most offices don't have guards by the door watching people uh, wander. Right. Uh, but the Supreme Court did uh, and does. So um, at any time he would do it, he would be returned to um, you know to her chambers
1: as you talked with uh, her son jay uh what are his feelings now as his mother has uh, fought not only this incredible battle to care for her husband but now a battle of her own
3: well she's 88 years old and he he basically said to me that um she's doing okay meaning that um most days you can have a a a decent conversation you know with her uh, but he notices maybe every six months a, a change in her. And, um, uh, you know, depending on the time of the day, he says you can still have a good conversation. But five minutes later, you might have the same conversation. That's just the way it goes with Alzheimer's.
2: Well, and that's very, as as we've talked about for the people that are listening with Alzheimer's, it's fairly common with the stair step down where about every six months or every time period, you know, they're on a plateau for a while and then, boom, there's just a noticeable drop and they'll stay there for a while. So that's not unusual.
1: And you write that she was in denial, that she uh, knew there was a problem, she was seeing a problem, but simply didn't want to admit it.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, somebody uh, of that stature but it was it, i think it was as much having gone through this with her own mother her own aunt her own father her own husband um i i think it, it it almost becomes unbearable to think that this is about to happen to you as well, and I think that's probably she was so knowledgeable intimately knowledgeable about how devastating this you know what they call the long goodbye is and um uh it it it, it is a a very very sad um uh, punctuation mark on her life but um you know Jay tells me that you know she is happy and and that um um and you know she is not in any you know pain or anything like that um so it's it's um you know and i I did ask him the question that that every family who has members with Alzheimer's you know talk about, which is uh how worried how worried are you and and um you know he, he, of course he's worried and just like my sister and I are worried but but you know and i ended the piece with you know his quote he says you know life goes on and you just need to to plow through you you can't you can't become paralyzed with the idea that you're you're about to um become another alzheimer's patient because the genetic makeup may may be different
1: now, how are you doing? You had, uh, according to the information that uh, I read, you had a stroke in 2000. You recovered from it. Uh, is there much of a correlation between stroke and onset of Alzheimer's at some point?
3: I don't, I don't know that there is, but, uh, you know, I have to tell you that... Um I cannot be more grateful uh, for, obviously, the medical help. Uh, it was a fairly serious stroke, and I had a little bit of a precursor three months earlier. This was back in the year 2000. And... um when I when I recovered from the stroke, uh, Ted Koppel said, you know what you really should do is do a nightline program on stroke because it's the third leading killer, at least it was at that time. And people need to know that there's something unlike Alzheimer's, you can actually do a lot of good by getting to the hospital in a couple of hours. So I said, Ted, you know, I'm a behind-the-scenes guy. I'm not really in front-of-the-camera kind of guy. And he said, you know, you really should do this. It will it will do a lot of good. And I did. And I have to tell you, of all the experiences I've had over the years in journalism, I'm perhaps proudest of this simply because we started to get emails the day after the program saying, I recognize the signs of stroke in my loved one. I got them to the hospital. You helped save their life. Now, I did not get into journalism to save people's lives. As a matter of fact, we used to joke in the newsroom to say, this is not brain surgery television. And um, it it just gave me an immense amount of satisfaction to know there was even one person, let alone dozens that we got emails from, who felt that we had helped them. So that, that... That part of my stroke, uh, I I would not wish that on anybody, but having had the stroke, the fact that I could telegraph to uh, the outside world about what you can do if you see the signs of stroke, that that made me feel... Feel
4: very good.
2: Well, you know, and that's, but it's such an important um, lesson that we have learned. That probably until about the time you did that, maybe it was your report that minutes matter in a stroke, and the fact that you are right now on the show and and seeing how for, people come can come back such a long ways from a stroke. A, if they get you know early medical attention, and B, that's you know it's we're resilient people, and so the acronym that,
1: is FAST. Facial, and, and all of the other aspects. going to say that, go that it, neither one of us
2: can name. No, fast. <laughs> but the
1: key—you you had a uh, clot or hemorrhagic stroke.
3: No, I I actually had, it was a, an ischemic stroke, ischemic, and right. this, this was caused, was kind of a birth defect that I didn't know I had. Wow. Most people have one vertebral artery going up each side of the neck. I had two. One of them was weak and gave off a clot, but wow. my neurologist said, the good news is it's lodged in a dead end, so he did not think I'd have any future problems, and I, I haven't. And um, uh, again, looking at the happy side of stroke... Uh, he arranged uh, a few months after I got out of a hospital. They were doing Stroke Day at the Baltimore Orioles Stadium, so he had me throw out the first ball. So that was oh, that that's was, cool. Uh, that was fun.
1: I have to ask you: Did you bounce it or get it over the plate? Well,
3: I made—I just got it to the plate, but not. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think the Orioles were about to hire.
1: That's me. That's a lot of pressure. We are flat out of time. I thank you so much for joining us and for folks who haven't read the next avenue article it was march 2019 just a few weeks ago and richard harris we could go on for another several hours you're a delight to talk to as i'm sure you're uh, not you know you often hear that so we'll try to get you back at some point
3: thanks very much appreciate it
1: thanks take care and happy passover that's fascinating Well, stuff. it is.
2: I mean, I feel like this is another Forrest Gump moment, that if we could sit Richard Harris down and go through everything that, that he done. has done and all the people that he's talked to, we would see that he was at turning points of history so many times. Well,
1: it's unbelievable. He talked to Gary Hart uh, following the Donna N- Rice affair, N-
2: Nelson Mandela of the interview right after right. he got out of prison. The Newtown, Connecticut shootings, you know, right. talking about guns in America.
1: Unbelievable. Why don't we do Take 10 next? Let's do. Right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
2: You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure. But we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
1: You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. As you know, if you're a regular listener to Caregiver SOS On Air, we bring you Take 10 at the completion of each and every one of our programs. We're joined by Dr. Jamie Heisman on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, a nationally known psychotherapist and an expert on caregiving and addictions. Carol Zerniel is here, and I'm Ron Aaron, along with you as well. This topic, caring for someone who really doesn't have anything except old age.
2: Well, you know, a lot of times we talk about caregivers, they dealing with some with Parkinson's, they've got Alzheimer's, someone has cancer, but there are a lot of people out there who are caring for someone who just has grown frail, and this is a long-term, slow commitment. It's not sexy. It doesn't have a name. So, Jamie, psychologically, is it different to just deal with the humdrum old age of life um, you know, is it any harder when something just goes on and on with no end in sight than it is to know exactly what you're dealing with? You know, because you, you kind of have a roadmap when you have a disease of what might happen next.
4: Without a doubt. Now, for somebody like me who does interventions, of course, I'm more into the obviously acute sort of you know, disease-driven sort of process. But it is an entirely different process to deal with the, the frail and elderly uh, the vulnerability over time is, is much different and um you know with a disease you kind of study up you become dr google if you will and go on or you ask friends or you have some already you know some sort of projection in your mind about how things are going to go in terms of dealing with the the frail and elderly as they grow older slower you're looking at things that are associated you know uh, with how well they can take stresses and how vulnerable are they and, and how what's their age and, and monitoring their weight loss and and, and and their ability to walk and actually to do any tasks. So it's, it happens over a period of time.
2: Do you think it's less stressful, or does that just depend on the person on how they're handling the situation?
4: I think it's a shot of adrenaline when you do an intervention. And um, I think you kind of go over the top, you almost saying how do I say that? Almost disassociate, you know, and you go into sort of uh, first responder role. And I think later on, when you come out of that, you start going into the grief issues and deal with the complications of, of loss, or if not, obviously, of them, you know, going through that, that sudden time. I think, though, when you're vulnerable, uh, both as a caregiver and as, as the carrier and as a loved one, uh, and, and you're actually. Taking this in a long kind of slow mo process, I do think you're much more conscious, and I think it does become much more difficult and sometimes much more strenuous over time. And you really have to know, you know, how much you can as a caregiver do, and, and how you can back the situation to marshal resources in as this declination uh, continues.
2: Well, I've got you know, there's been members of my family who have you know, live to a, an old age over a long period of time. And it seems like, um, you know, it's a parade of doctors when you're caring for someone who's got a lot of different things going on, whether it's the, you know, you're the primary care doctor or the eye doctor or the cardiologist or well, the, the rheumatologist, endocr- rheumatologist endocrinologist, um, dermatologist, and and. and You know, it seems like the one of the biggest difficulties is just juggling all of those doctors who may be giving conflicting, you know, advice and reports.
4: I so agree with you, Carol, and I think that that's one of the reasons why groups like WellMed, who literally can coordinate care in the proper manner, to be able to. Take it from the hospitalist to the 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 community doctors, the primary care doctors, and the specialists, and to look at outcomes and to try to corral all this you know information. I think it's just, it's critical uh, to to have a group like that, and I think that's the future of of Medicare, where it's all going to go to.
2: Well, what about um, you know? I was talking to someone the other day because their mother is a diabetic. She's ninety three. They've been taking care of her for years, and she just loves ice cream, (laughs) the real ice cream. (laughs) So, you know, what about choice? When we're caring for someone who has lived a long time and they're making decisions, you know, they're they're getting older and frailer, they want to make decisions and have control of their life, and they have their faculties. You know, what advice would you give to caregivers in situations like that?
4: You know, it's not clinical advice, it's personal advice, because we've been going through this with my father. And, of course, to intervene literally on his wife, who's a caregiver who doesn't allow him, you know, anything that's off the, the beaten track to try to keep him going for you know as long as he can. We, we, we just sat down, and, and my sister and I said, that's, that's not acceptable, really. At this stage in my father's life, he could make his own choices within moderation, and we can all help them with his own choices, but to lose your autonomy and, and to lose actually the fun stuff, if you will, that you find fun in this process, I think is too much to ask of, of your loved one. That's only my personal sort of, uh, of look at it. Obviously people in different disease states may have a different kind of connection with their body chemistry is, is at stake. But with my father, especially with the, say, the frail and elderly, you kind of have to let them be.
2: Well, I, I'm relieved to hear you say that because we did smuggle a few beers into the nursing home for my uncle on occasion.
1: <laughs> well, my mother's PCP, my, my mother had high cholesterol, and she was 91, and the doctor said, "Don't worry about it, Evelyn. Eat what you want."
4: Right, and I think that's really. And what she we did need to tell the caregivers, so "Don't forget, you've heard it too much from me. When you're out of control, you get most controlling." Caregivers that have fear and trepidation, and and you know, well, they should. Maybe sometimes about the process will tend to get controlling, and in that control process, uh, you know, they become out of control, and and so let let them be.
1: So, how did your father's wife take your intervention?
4: You know, it was tough. It was tough. We had to bring her brother in. uh Because I I don't think, I think when she sees my sister and I, she sees it from one side of the family, and she says, you know, as the martyr, she really feels that she's the one who's done everything the whole time. You can't tell her any different. This is her her basic path. So afterwards, though, I think when her brother came in, I I think she did uh, lighten up. And actually, uh, my father, we we, we gave him a little sake, because just like Carol, uh, I, too, was uh, bring
2: stuff into the rehab at some point. <laughs> well, it, it. I mean, it's nice to know, and I think that you know, we talk about one of long-term caregiving where it lasts years, and in any caregiving, it doesn't matter what the situation. There's got to be some fun. There's got to be some life in in the years, you know. And it may be little small things um, that maybe aren't the greatest for you, but hopefully won't kill you.
1: <laughs> You're listening to Take Ten on nine thirty a.m. The Answer. We end each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Take 10. Joined by Dr. Jamie Heisman on the Caregiver SOS on-air hotline, Carol Zerniel, and I'm Ron Aaron.
2: Well, and I should amend to say, you know, there are some real definite no-nos. If you know there's a drug interaction that's dangerous or, you know, some, drinking alcohol with a particular drug is absolutely forbidden. You, you know, you don't want to go there. Um, it's, it's kind of in the, some of the gray areas. But, you, you but a have, dish
1: of ice cream. A,
2: I know, a dish of ice cream. But I think the idea of of giving um, a person some autonomy, some decision-making control, uh, allowing everyone to have some fun along the way, um, you know, really makes a difference in in what otherwise is a very long journey. Yes.
1: And for the caregiver, Dr. Jamie, how do you prepare and how does the caregiver prepare for that long journey where it's a disease with a name and it's got a finite end coming – Maybe easier than she's just hanging on.
4: Well, no doubt. And, again, I have to go back to taking your oxygen first each and every time here. I mean, nobody's going to get out of this world without touching caregiving in some way. Uh, You know, Rosalind Carter was the first to obviously throw a quote out about that. So if we do know that's coming in any way, shape, or form, and with the frail and elderly, we always know it's coming. It's time to really take care of your medical health, your psychological health. And and obviously your spiritual or social health, uh, you isolating or your loved one isolating or dealing with depression, agitation, sleep issues, uh, all this comes into the same sort of uh, greenhouse, if you will. So you have to take care of yourself, and it'll be the best thing for your loved one along the way to, to take that time for yourself to get stronger and get your two feet on the ground.
2: So maybe everything in moderation doesn't just apply to food. It can apply to caregiving efforts as well.
4: I do believe that. I think we go into this as superheroes already, and then we have our mom, dad, brother, and sister. And so it's superhero on steroids. And I think we all need to just lighten up. The beauty of my father and his wife um, are they do have a sense of humor, and they are able to still connect. And so, you know, we made that a part of that intervention of, of having her to lighten up.
1: Well, Jamie, thank you. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zirniel, I'm Ron Aaron. You've been listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. We catch you Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer